Good to see you guys. If I've not yet met you, my name is Tony. I'm on staff here with this ministry. And tonight, we are going to be continuing our conversation through the movement of God. So if you've got a Bible with you, whether it's on your phone, no shame, or you got it in paper, good for you. Uh, pull it out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's near the end of your Bible. As we go there, the question we're going to be trying to answer tonight is, what is God's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? Have you guys ever been to church camp? Uh, I went once. That's it. Uh, it was great and kind of weird all at the same time. I, I went really soon after I got saved. I got saved at this church. I heard the gospel for the first time when I was 16 in English, and I was like, oh, my gosh, that's good news. And so was doing that. I was kind of like that weird Christian kid where I was, like, really hyped up about it, and I thought everyone else needed to be too. So I'd be like, hey, have you heard of Jesus? <laughs> no one liked that. Didn't work. Not what I would recommend. But I went to this camp. And some of the language that we used at this camp uh, that I went to through this church was, was a lot of like spirit-led language. Okay, So maybe some of you guys are from churches like that. But it was a lot of like, hey, man, what are you going to do with your life? What's this spirit leading you to? What's God calling you to? And keep in mind, I was like fresh in. I was like a month into following Jesus. And I was like, man... I'd like to, like, graduate high school, get decent grades, make some gains. I was like, these are my goals and ambitions in life. I didn't really have any ambitions of going overseas or doing any of this crazy stuff they were talking about. But I was like, okay. But I know I need to, like, live out the preaching. You know, you know how they say, like, practice what they preach, whatever. Okay. That was, like, my ambition. I remember being in the sixth round of Set a Fire on, like, this weekend camp retreat, uh, which apparently isn't a famous song. Great song. Remember, like it was yesterday, uh, sixth round, I just learned how to worship. Like, you know when you first step into church and you're like, why are these people raising their hands to worship? And it, like, freaks you out, but then slowly you're like, okay, maybe I can, like, put my hands out, really receive what's going on here. You really feel strong. It's like a fist, you know? Like, that was me. I finally graduated to hands. It was awesome. Uh, I was there, and I was praising Jesus, and I had this thought. I was like, man, what's God's will for my life? And then I kind of scanned the room. And I see this really cute girl. And I was like, this has to be God. This has to be God. <laughs> so I lived it. I lived it. I was like, oh, I'm going to practice what I preach. This is not a do this at home, okay? Dude, don't try this tonight. It's not going to work. Guaranteed it's not going to work. I walk up to her after service, and I hit her with this line. I was like, hey, listen. It's a spirit-filled moment. Don't laugh at me. It's a spirit-filled moment. I was like, hey, I think it's God's will that we would go on a date and maybe even get married. Like, I literally said that. I was like 16. I was like, marriage? Woo! Did not know what that meant. Uh, so anyways, I did that, and she answered with a question, and it was no. Like, she was like... Not interested. I was like, I'm just going to go back to my dorm, never leave. Okay. Uh, so that was disappointing. That's a bummer. Uh, anyways, I think we still do that. Wow, sharp transition. Okay. I think we still do that. And here's what I mean by that is a lot of us ask the question, what's God's will for my life? Right? And we, we don't like explicitly ask that all the time, but we're kind of like always thinking about it. We're like, okay, is it like... Should I study youth studies or finance? Youth studies, go this way. 
or it's like, should I take this internship or that internship? And it's always like this binary action where like, okay, is it this one that God wants me to do or this one? And the reality is it's like super vague and no one really knows, but we live our entire lives asking that question. And for a lot of us, it's not like, okay, am I going to ask this girl out after cell company, which maybe some of you guys are, I don't know. It might be like, hey, am I going to go overseas? Should I not go overseas? Should I do this? Should I not do that? And honestly, I think this can be a really paralyzing question for us to ask. And the good news that I have for you guys is as you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are going to see in God's word what his will is for your life. 1 Thessalonians whew, chapter 4. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Okay. From this text, we see pretty explicitly, this is God's will for your life. Thank you, Paul. You finally figured it out for me. This is God's will for your life. His desire, his plan, his ambition for your life is to be sanctified. So in this section of the text, God, Paul's going to hit on two big heavy hitters, okay? One is sanctification, which is this big word we're going to discuss, and the other is sexuality. And so let's start with sanctification. The original language here in this text of sanctification is the same root as saint. And all in all, it's, it's, it's this idea of being holy, okay? So if you were to sanctify a thing, it would be to set apart that thing for something sacred. Is that fine? Okay. If you were to sanctify a person, it would be to set them apart as holy. In other words, God's will for your life is to be made holy by God. And honestly, guys, I think the issue is sometimes when we use this big word sanctification, the process of being changed to look more like Jesus, the issue is we put a way too high of emphasis on what we do. Like, I don't know if you guys have asked anyone this. This is a great test question for people really stump them, you know. Uh, you can go up to someone and be like, hey, okay, I'm struggling with this really specific sin, whether it's like lust or anger or frustration, or discontentment, whatever, you go up to them, and this is a really practical question that all Christians ask. So if you're going to join leadership, be ready to answer this question, okay? What do I do to change that? Or they'll ask a different form of question. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to do what Jesus did. I actually desire to do that, and yet every single day I still fall into my own old sin patterns. How do I change and oftentimes the answer we've given in the church at large has been some weird amalgamation of, like, action and, like, memorization of Bible verses. Like, I don't know if you guys got this, but it's like, okay, here's how you do it. Buckle down. This is how you change. You read your Bible seven mornings a week. Mornings, not afternoons. <laughs> mornings. You go to Salt Company and church every single week, and here's three Bible verses, note card, for you to memorize, and all your problems will be fine. And we laugh at that, but that's often how we treat sanctification. It's what can I do to change myself? But what will actually change you is knowing God. Who he is, what he loves, his character. Like, have you ever gotten to know a friend and they just have, like, weird quirks about them? Like, get to know God on that level. Get to know God where if someone asks you, hey, who's that Jesus guy we talk about? You're not like, well, he's this historical figure. That lived 2,000 years ago and wore Jesus sandals and togas. Like, don't respond like that. Know God intimately. 
Like actually know Jesus, where you can talk to them about his character, about the times he came through for you when you were struggling, about the beauty of his love. Like be able to know God like that. That's how you're going to change. Notice in verse 4, I want you guys to look there, how Paul compares and contrasts the Gentile and the Christian. How the Gentile is motivated by lust and the Christian is motivated by love. The distinguishing evidence is that the Gentiles do not know God. Okay, Christian, here is how you fight for holiness and change. You know God. A little bit more on sanctification. Here, here's the reality of sanctification. It, it's not so much a decision or an action you do, but it's actually a posture that you have, and that is surrender. And I woke up this morning, guys, honestly super anxious. Like I woke up and I was like, okay, this message just isn't cool enough. I literally thought that. I was like, okay, my main idea is live holy, and I'm like, ah, I just feel like it needs more. So I was like, do I need to add some alliteration? It's like, how many more H's do I need? Maybe it's like live holy in hope. Live holy in hope, heralding the Lord. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. But literally, a part of me just died in that moment because I realized that I was seeking to serve myself. I wanted the applause of people in my life more than I wanted God's word to be spoken. And so I had a choice in that moment to either, like, do that and make, like, a really catchy, like, multiple age level big idea or whatever. Or to surrender and lay down my sin to walk with Jesus, man. And so I just put in my AirPods, turned on one of my favorite preachers. He's Australian. He's got an amazing accent. Wow, he's great. And I just walked. And I, I just do these things where I, I walk and I don't have a distinguishable amount of time or distance. And I call them my lost walks where I get lost. And, and I just walked into like kind of weird neighborhoods and I met Antonio and we sat down on the curb and we talked life. It was great. And I got to pray for him and I just prayed and talked to Jesus the whole time. And I was like, yo, like, I don't know how tonight's going to go, but I do know that you're faithful. So take my eyes off my own performance and put it on you. Like, help me to see you, man, because I'm, like, blind. And the reality is that's what worship is. Like, we sometimes think worship is only, like, when you're in the shower listening to Hillsong, whatever. Or when you're here, worship is the act of taking your eyes off of your own stuff and putting it on the beauty of Jesus. And God uses worship to change you. Because in worship, you encounter the king of the universe. All right, I love this quote that we're about to put up from Beautiful Resistance. Is that good? Yes, okay. Under the care of the good shepherd, our souls will be restored. Under the shepherding of our culture, our souls will be destroyed. I know. Thou preach, you know what I'm saying? I was like, wow, that's so good. I had to put it in there. Uh, here's, what, here's what worship actually looks like for you. It looks like your soul's being restored back to Eden. So, company, we live east of Eden. But in Eden, there was a time when your soul was actually whole. When you were in perfect communion with God, man. And it was awesome. And you never had to worry about, okay, am I sinning too much for God's love? You never had to worry about anything. Because in Eden, it was perfect communion. And here's what worship does for your soul is it restores you back to that place. So we worship King Jesus all the time, and we live lives of worship. So that's sanctification, this process in which God makes you holy. But I want, you, I want to look at the rest of the verses in this segment, segment second, half, second half of verse 3 all the way through 8. In that, we're going to be talking about Sexual immorality. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And guys, in this section, Paul is getting at a lot of the teachings of Jesus and God and the Bible around this ethic. And I love what he does here, right? He doesn't say sex before marriage, even though that's what 99% of people think the church is against. It's like, oh, well, you guys are just Christians. Like, you guys just don't do sex before marriage, and that's fine. Okay, I love what Paul does here because he's not just a theologian. He's a pastor, and he knows that you're about to use the same excuse that I use in college, which is we're not technically having sex. I'm just watching porn a couple times a week. Yeah, I know that Game of Thrones is kind of like soft porn, but listen, I'm not technically having sex, and so by therefore, I'm not sinning. But Paul uses a term here that's a broader term than just sex before marriage. He uses the term sexual immorality. And not only does he do that, but he shows us the conduct of the Christian. We are a sexual counterculture as a church. And so what we do is we don't just not do it, but we abstain to formally decline from engaging in it. I think Paul is drawing in this idea of a broader segment of of some of what Jesus said in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. One of his most famous sermons, he talked about how adultery isn't just having sex with someone else's husband or wife. But that actually a look could create lust and lust can create adultery. So if you look at someone with your eyes lustfully, then you are committing adultery. He takes this idea of sinning like the world views the church as and gives us a deeper understanding of the heart behind that sin. And this is the heart behind the sin of sexual immorality. Is that you are worth way too dang much for you to live a life of sexual immorality, man. Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians 6, okay? This is what he says. This is so good, man. Like, you got to take this one to the bank. It's so good. He says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, what is that price? The blood of Jesus. The sexual ethic that the church has subscribed to this entire time, the sexual ethic that Jesus is describing isn't some hobby horse that we ride, man. It's showing you that your body, if you are in Christ, is worth immeasurably more than you could ever hope or imagine because it was blot by the blood of Jesus. So you don't use your body that is worth so much for things that are worth so little. And this is how the sexual ethic plays out in the church versus culture. We're going to throw up a quote from John Tyson. Man, I'm about to get real. This is so good. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan, get this, gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And yet the Christian, these Christians... Thessalonian Christians, actual church, real people trying to abstain from sexual morality in that time. And yet the Christian came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. Why? Because the call to holiness in the church is to be stingy with your body because it was bought with a ridiculous price. The radical and weighty blood of Jesus on the cross. And the call is to be ridiculously generous with your money because you know that your whole life now is a gift in God. So you can just shell out money and you can be stingy with your body because you know where your worth is. And it's not in the amount of money that you have, but it's in the body that was bought with the blood of Jesus. This is the counterculture that we live in. So I'll come in. We live in a culture today. 
that is feeling the scars of the sexual revolution that happened in the 80s, 60s and 80s. Let me just preach the gospel to you from that perspective. This was the gospel. Not the real gospel. The gospel of the sexual revolution. This was their message. That's all going to be. If you could just be more sexually expressive and free, then that would lead to true fulfillment and freedom. In other words, if you could take what the biblical ethic for the last 2,000 years has been, throw that out as a piece of culture and say that's not relevant anymore, you would now have access to true freedom. Now that might sound good in theory, but let's just flesh that out and practice today. In 2021, how's that worked out for us? Do we live in a culture where you actually feel more sexually free? 93 to 95% in some different estimates say percentage of men in America today are in bondage and captivity to pornography. Does that sound that much more free to you? How free does it feel when you're talking with someone else and you're wondering, do they want to hang out with me? Do they want a relationship with me because they care about me or because they like my body? How free does it feel when you've been trying to fight porn for the last six years and your image and view of women and men in your life have been completely distorted? This is the true gospel that fights against that message, man. Because, listen, in the true gospel, the knowledge that only through Christ alone, only through Jesus alone, can you receive the true and radical freedom and knowledge of love that you desire, only through him alone, that is what fights the sex, sexual culture of our day. And I think there's a, there's a quote that I have. Man, I've been, I've been loving quotes in this message. It's so good. There's a quote that I have that I want to explain that idea. See, this idea for wanting longing, this desperate desire for longing in our souls is not new to this moment, but has been discussed all throughout history. So I love this from the rumors of another world. The very word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow, I spelled that wrong, the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as a longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. That feeling that the sexual revolution tried to take, which was this feeling and longing for truly being known by someone else, they tried to take that and they distorted it by saying the way that you can solve that is by having sex with anyone in any way, and there are no longer categories for what is moral and immoral. But we know as Christians, that feeling that we have, that deep desire that you have, where everything this world can provide you doesn't feel, that desire for union was meant only for King Jesus in your life. We know that sex is but a picture, a preview of what you will have in heaven for all of eternity with God, a true union where you'll never have to wonder if they love you or not. That day is the Trinitarian community of peace, and they will. Paul ends this section on sanctification and sexuality in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives this Holy Spirit to you. 
When you're reading epistles, Paul has really good logic, okay? So he opens up a text with something, ends the text with something, and that ending is the conclusion, the emphasis in which he wants you to understand. This is his emphasis. Let me make this clear as I possibly can, okay? Abstaining from sexual immorality, having a different counterculture of sex in the, in the church, pushing back on the sexual revolution and all of that of this age, this is not my opinion. This is not Saul Company's hobby horse. This is not the white evangelical church's opinion. This is a mandate of God. And I need us to get that because without getting that, we don't know why we actually do it. <laughs> because for so much of church history, it's just been, hey, don't have sex. Sex is bad. Oh, you're watching porn? Feel shame. But we have not done an adequate job of showing the work that the reason why we don't is because King Jesus calls us not to. Look at verses 1 to 2 with me. Finally then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through Lord Jesus. Paul begins and ends this section of scripture with a clear vision for why we push back on the sexual ethic of the age. Because we are people that live by Jesus in his instruction and live by the spirit in us to fight against that. We live as people seeking to live as Jesus did. This is our motivation. So last year at Salt Conference, if you guys were there, it was a good time. Who knows when we'll have another 3,000-person gathering again. That was great. Uh, I asked out a girl this time. <clears throat> she said yes. It was great. Uh, thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. I had an uncomfortable wait. I shouldn't have done that. It was my bot. Okay. We're actually getting married in June, which is really exciting. So maybe I could have used. Thank you. I really wasn't trying to. Okay. Anyways, could have used the will of God line, didn't, didn't, which is really good. Anyways, here's the deal. We're getting married. June 6th. Prior to meeting Josie, I was what the kids would call a bachelor, okay? Here's what I owned in my possession of household utensils. One fork. One size fits all for the amount of forks that I had. It was great. I would wash it after every use, and I would use it again the next time I had to eat. One spoon. One butter knife. One chef's knife one cutting board, and your boy was set. And my life was awesome. Now that I've met Josie, I've learned that she's, like, better at life than I am and actually enjoys, like, having more than one thing so that, you know, if we wanted to host people and share the gospel, then we actually could. I was like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I've never thought about that. She also, like, designs our apartment that we're about to move in, and it looks so good. There's so many plants. It looks like the Amazonian forest, man. I was like, wow, there's the oxygen. is so good. Uh, so it's great. And listen, June 6th rolls around, right? I've got a decision to make here, okay? Because my lifestyle prior to us getting married is one fork. And I guess I have this option, right, where I could be like, hey, Joe, here's the deal. I know you have a lot of forks, a lot of crate and barrel stuff that have already been delivered to our house for our registry. But have you considered living my way? One fork. I could, but I won't. Why? Because when you love someone, you want to love what they love. And plot twist, the way that she lives is way better anyways. <laughs> when you meet Jesus and fall in love with him, you want to love what he loves. 
You know what he loves? Each image bearer of God having the dignity and worth to have sex in the confines of his marriage, to show a true unity and communion that is supposed to point to Christ and his bride for all of eternity future. That's what he loves. And he loves you. Paul transitions from us being set apart as holy sexually to how we love one another and work. Let's open up to verse, chapter, or verse 9. We live a holy life by loving your brothers and sisters and working hard. Man, my voice is raspy, okay? <clears throat> now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed, that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we've instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Yo, I just want to start the next point by saying, man, our staff, we are so proud of you guys. Seriously, like, this has been at least in my life, the most contentious year of my life, where we were given every opportunity within the church of God to point knives at each other, to cut each other down for our different ideologies on COVID and racial tension. And let me just say, our staff, we are so encouraged by your brotherly love. Like, actually, we see in Saul Company what Paul saw in the Thessalonica church. And we just want to say, do this more and more. Like, it is so worth it, man. I know it is hard to love people with different ideologies, but please don't stop. It honors Jesus. I think it makes him smile. Like, I really do. It honors Jesus. And Paul, in this text, continues his logic from loving your brothers and sisters to work. I think sometimes, man, like, you go to the church, you're, like, in the church, and you're trying to process through all of life, and, and you start to... I think some of us can have this idea of uh, sacred and secular. Okay, so what's sacred? It's like, okay, well, reading your Bible in the morning, prayer, going to church, connection group. Okay, well, what's secular? Well, like work, school, internships, and everything else that I do in my life, like the other 100 hours of your week. And I think we can have a temptation to think, okay, this matters. None of this matters. I think what Paul is trying to show us in this text is actually the way you live matters. Your daily life actually really matters, man. Like, it matters to God. And I, I want us to see in this text that there's a way to not just work and to love, but a way to lovingly work. To work in a way that would show the outside world that you live different. You're set apart as someone different. I want you guys to look at verse 11 with me. This is the vision for your life. To live quietly. To work with your hands. Okay, maybe you're typing. To work with your hands. To be faithful. And in the NIV, it translates to work and live in a way that would win the respect of outsiders. To live with integrity. So I'll come in. If I were to guess, there's a couple different ways that we work in this room. There's two ditches you can fall into. One is apathy and one is addiction. And some of you in this room are apathetic in your, in your work, in your classes, in, in the work that you do. Like, you need to be told, like, that work actually matters. Your life matters. Like, how you conduct yourself in the workplace matters. 
a lot of us in this room are addicted. Because if I were to guess, your mission statement wouldn't be, I aspire to live a quiet life. My mission statement growing up was never to aspire to live a quiet life. But I just like was outrageously addicted to work when I was in college. And I would work like three jobs and 50 hours a week and do all this kind of crazy stuff and I wouldn't sleep almost at all. And here's why. It wasn't because I like had this outward facing desire to work, but it was because I was running from something. Think about the word driven for a second. What is that? You're driven by something towards something. And that's something that you're driven by is often fear of failure or insecurity. And this is what I want you to hear here at Salt Company. That ambition is beautiful if it is redeemed by the gospel. That Jesus doesn't want you to live an apathetic life, but he doesn't want you to live a life of work as your God. He wants you to see it as a gift and have it be redeemed by him for his glory. And this is the call of a Christian, is to live a quiet life and a life that actually really matters. The other vision that our culture casts us is a life of loudness. Like I, I read this study. I don't know how true this is. That's my disclaimer. It's a little bit rambunctious. Uh, I read this study that they took a sample size of 6 to 17-year-olds here in the United States and asked them the question, what is your preferred uh, future career? And 74% of them said social media influencer. And immediately I was like, we're screwed, man. <laughs> like that is, we need like people who do stuff with their hands. I was like, what is this? Uh, 34% of them wanted to be a professional YouTuber. And honestly, I get it. I watch a lot of YouTube. Uh, crazy. But how crazy is it? That's my question for us. How crazy is it? Because honestly, we live in a culture where if you just have a camera, your name can become your brand. They teach you this in marketing, and it's like, ha-ha, funny. No, I'm serious. We live in a culture that uses social media platforms like the Twitter, the Instagram, TikTok, and even something like OnlyFans to leverage our face and sometimes even our bodies to create idols for men. That's the cultural legacy that they're calling you to live, is to live a life of loudness. But listen, Paul doesn't say in this text not to be noticed by people, but he gets to the heart of why you should want to be noticed. It's not because you're living a loud, famous life or a rambunctious life or an ambitious life, but actually because your life is recognized as being a quiet life that honors Jesus. Like, like what if, I know this sounds weird, what if, which we say this a lot in the church, what if you actually lived in a way that your outside coworkers or outside people in your life would at least want to know why? I'm not saying they need to be like, okay, Drew's good at putting in doors. I'm going to follow Jesus. Like, I'm not saying that's the jump, okay? Like, if that happens, like, tell us. Like, we'd love to take a video. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But I think what Paul is saying is what if you put in doors, you serve the people in your life, you love your coworker, you ask them about their life, so as to open the door for a gospel conversation. Open the door. Okay. What if? I didn't do that on purpose, honestly. I'm sorry. Wow, I am loose. Okay, um, where am I? Oh, this, okay. Here's what I want you to take away. I know, I know. I'm sorry. All right, all right, don't do that. I'm sorry, Drew, if you're listening. Okay, uh, 
Here's what I want you to take away from this segment of Paul's text, okay? It is less important what you do and more important how you do it. Just repeat that. There's some murmurs. It is less important what you do and more important how you do it. Because the reality is you're going to be tempted by culture to think that director of this, director of that is what your value is in, what your eternal kingdom impact is in. No, do whatever you want. What's God's will for your life? Whatever job he gives you. Okay? Get a job. It's good. It matters how you do it. Uh, I didn't ask these guys if I could do this, but if you guys want to turn around and look at the tech booth real quick, Ben Pauly and Jordan Brooks, can you guys stand up quickly? You don't have to stand up for too long, but can you just stand up? Okay. All right. Woo! All right. Those guys. Let me tell you about Ben Pauly and Jordan Brooks. It is outrageous, their faithfulness, okay? Ben Pauly did lyrics every Thursday for three years. Some of you guys are like, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. And I don't know if you've ever done lyrics, which you likely haven't joined Tech Team. It is genuinely terrifying. Like, I, it's only about, like, clicking a space bar, and I just, like, am so bad at it, I miss lines. Like, I don't know how to do it. He has clicked a space bar for three years for your good and for God's glory. And what's true about Jordan Brooks behind the camera and Ben Pauly is they work 9 to 5. Yeah, shocker, they don't get paid to click a space bar. But they work 9 to 5. They live a life that honors Jesus at their work, and then they serve God with the rest of their time. And I can't help but wonder if this is going to be the scene as they enter into heaven one day. That student after student after student who's been impacted by the ministries here at Salt Company Twin Cities and at Salt City Church and maybe even as students at Syracuse and Ann Arbor and all these different plants that are going out will be able to walk up to Ben and, and Jordan in heaven one day and say, hey, thanks for pressing the space bar, man. Because one of those space bar clicks is when I gave my life to Jesus as I worshiped King Jesus at a salt company. And I can't help but wonder if why don't we want that? Why don't we desire that life? That's the life that Paul is calling us to. Be faithful, live a life of integrity, and walk with Jesus in a way that outsiders would see, but in a way that honors Jesus. That's the call of our lives as Christians. But honestly, guys, living holy is hard, so we need hope. I want us to turn to verse 13, that we are, that we live a holy life, a set-apart life by having hope and encouraging others in hope. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We pick up this text in a time where being a Christian was not just cool, it was killable in Thessalonica. And, and we read a book like 1 Thessalonians and we're like, man, this is so encouraging. Paul's just like, keep loving each other, do this more and more. And you're like, Paul, I got you. Like, you're just like, this is so encouraging until you realize that them living a holy life, their sexual ethic, because of who King Jesus is, not King Caesar, them living a holy life in a quiet life. You know, it's really easy to be quiet when, like, your life isn't under attack. It's pretty hard to be quiet when people are dying in the streets that are Christian. And so there's this question brought up to Paul of, hey, like, 
my uncle just got martyred for being a Christian. What's happening to him? Because unlike this world, the Christians who died of that time didn't have legacies to live. They weren't leaving behind like huge wills with massive 401ks. They were dying as peasants and poor people with no legacy. So the Thessalonians are thinking, Paul, what gives? We're following Jesus. You promised us eternal life, and now our people are being killed in the streets, and we have nothing to show for it. They have no legacy that they've left. They have no worldly legacy, no ambition or loudness of their lives. All they did was live a quiet life, and they were killed for it. What happens to them? This is the hope that we have. That if you are in Christ, as we see in verse 14, if you are in Christ, when you die, you descend as Jesus did to the grave, only to resurrect with him to heaven. See, death is this weird tension for the Christian. Because death for those who are in Christ, for us, it feels often like pain mixed with pleasure, sadness mixed with joy, sorrow mixed with grief. Because for the Christian, true life begins when they die. They begin to access the king of the universe. And they don't have to cry the way we cry in this world. I love Paul's language here. We are not uninformed. He's implying that if you do not know that Jesus is your king and savior and that there's a step, a dot, dot, dot after death, then your natural reaction is grief and grief alone. But if you know Jesus, then you are informed. And this is where we're holy, set apart. We grieve, but not those without hope. We grieve in hope, man. And this is the hope that we have, not just that, when you die, you will rise with Jesus again, but we have hope that he is coming again. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Man, Paul hits us with like a hope sandwich. He's like, okay, hope. Here's why you hope. It's because that friend that you died, if they're in Christ, they're living now. They're with Jesus. Okay, here's why you hope now. Is that you who are still in the world, as you suffer. We've all suffered. And I don't have to know you to know that. And the more that you live on this earth, you begin to realize that this life, like, just can't meet it. Like, it just can't. Like, our souls just cannot accept the reality that this life is all that there is. Why? Because it is a life full of suffering. But for those who are still here, left behind, as we wait for the coming of Jesus, here's the hope that we have is that one day Jesus will come back in power. He will come back and he will crush Satan's head with his heel. I want to 
take our eyes to Revelation 19. You don't have to turn there with me, but I just want to describe how John sees Jesus. He sees Jesus as a warrior king who rides on a white horse, eyes like flames of fire, his robe dripping with blood, those calling him the word of God, and on his thigh, king of kings, lord of lords. This is why this is good news for the Christian. Because there will be a day when Jesus will not ride into Jerusalem on a donkey headed for death, but will ride down from heaven on a stallion headed for life, and that life is yours. And if you are in Christ, then in that moment, as he enters the new Jerusalem, you too will enter the new Jerusalem. And heaven will meet earth. And every moment that you've ever had of doubting God, of feeling pain, of suffering, every moment that you've ever asked the question, God, why this, why that, every tear that you've cried will be wiped away on that day in New Jerusalem. And you will get an answer for all of the suffering of this life. But the answer you get today is hope. Hope in the king who can do that. Soul Company, here's the application of this message. We live a holy life because we know who we have hope in. And this is the one who is holy. And so my question for you tonight is this. Who do you hope in? Because the reality is every single person in this room will spend eternity somewhere. King Jesus is here right now. It is not too late to put your hope in him. Let me pray. Praise the living God. That we are not left to our own sin and our own trespasses and our own brokenness, but we were redeemed by the glorious king who came into this earth on a donkey, but will re-enter into this earth one day on a stallion. And his name is Jesus. Father, we pray your name tonight. And Lord, I don't know what everyone's come into this room with, but what I do know is they need the hope of the cross. They need to know that there is a dot, dot, dot to death. That this life that we are living in, the East of Eden type of life, is not the end of the story. That there is a new Jerusalem entering into this world. And that, Father, when you enter, every tear will be wiped away. Every question will be answered. Every fear will be dismayed. Father, here's my one prayer for us tonight. Is would we be a holy people set apart, not just in the way that we live, but in the way that we hope, in the ways that we breathe, in the ways that we ask you to move. So, Father, I do pray as a set-apart person, Lord, would you set apart another person here tonight? Would they enter into eternity of hope? Would their eyes be open to the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of the cross? Father, I pray big dreams for this room. That as we engage in worship, as we take our eyes off of ourselves and put it on the king, that we too would be changed. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In your name we pray.
Amen.